Today's conversation with Leslie Petke was enjoyable because I'd heard so many positive things about her when I went to a convention the same time she did and meeting her talking to her in person about her book and her innovative programs for understanding residents but also understanding her staffs hope you enjoy this conversation with leslie pitt as much as i did this episode was brought to you by experience.care the long-term care ehr backed by guarantees visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today Hello and welcome back to LTC Heroes Live by Experience Care. My name is Peter Murphy-Lewis. I'm your host. I'm excited today because the guest that I am interviewing, I met in person about a month ago. We were both at Leading Age Nebraska, and I would say it has to be top 10 for most positive words I've heard about a person before I met her in person. I'm excited. I'm talking to Leslie Petke. She's author, consultant, speaker, and founder at Dignity Quotient. Did I pronounce it right, Leslie? Leslie, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Leslie, I think we could start anywhere and everywhere on your background, but I think where I want to start off with is a quote, and then we'll get into what you spoke about at Leading Age Nebraska and why you were so well-received. But the quote that I'm going to throw at you, and I heard this in a conversation that you had with my co-host, Victoria, you said, the way we thank staff today is not good enough. Can you tell me why, when she asked you about the staffing crisis, those words came out of your mouth and what you mean by it? I was telling her that I think that we live in a world where people are looking for that immediate gratification. And thanks so much to social media, right, that we post things and we need that immediate gratification. And used to sending people a thank you card, giving them a gift card, that kind of seemed to be enough as a way of showing appreciation. But these days, that's not enough anymore. I was telling her that we really have to know who our staff are personally in order to know how to show them appreciation. That's perfect transition into, I don't know if this is a specific program that you have or you called this when you were doing it, but kind of elder shadowing. Is that the program that where you have staff live like a resident? Yeah. So that elder shadowing grew out of what I did, the program that I did that I called Through the Looking Glass. And so elder shadowing grew from that where in order for us, when we started hiring staff at the nursing home that I was the administrator at, it was so important for us to not damage the culture that we had created that we wanted all new staff to really buy into who we were. And so we made it a requirement that all brand new staff had to live in the nursing home for 24 hours with a person that was already a resident there in order for them to really learn what it was like to live there. Now, so the reason I specifically brought that up, and it might seem disjointed for someone who's never met you, I think it's because you actually end up using that question, like, are you willing to work in this program, Elder Shadowing, to determine if you're actually going to consider hiring that person? Is that right? Yeah. So when a person would come in to get an application, first of all, our residents actually hired our staff. We had a resident hiring committee. Everyone on that committee had to say yes to that person before they got to work there. And then they had to go through our elder shadowing program. And so we would tell people when they would come in for an application, just so you know, our residents actually hire our staff. And then you'll be required to actually live here for 24 hours before you get to start working here through any orientation. And I will never forget one time I had a person that came in for an application. When I went through that whole spiel with her, she said to me, I know that's why I'm here because I'm tired of working with people that I feel like don't care about where they're working. 
And so it was just like, that's exactly why we're doing it, because we wanted people to really own what they were doing. I bet that had to be one of the most fulfilling compliments that you had in yes. your very accomplished career. Yes, it definitely was. And feel free to give an introduction, whether it be as an author, as a consultant, when you answer this question. Tell me what you were speaking about at Leading Age Nebraska, and then I'll kind of interrupt along the way as some questions that I heard because I wasn't in your talk, but I heard from some of those in your audience. Okay. So I spoke about an experience that I did with my staff that we called Through the Looking Glass, that I invited staff to move in and live like dependent residents of long-term care. So they were given a real diagnosis. They had to live the role of that diagnosis the whole time they were there. And then every day, a couple of times a day, I would go down with them with a basket and they would pull out a slip of paper and it was a challenge that they had to do, whether it was the incontinent of urine, incontinent of bowel, be bathed by staff, have to be fed by staff, have a room change, wear a body alarm. Their family wasn't going to visit that day. Their clothes went missing. Every single thing that our residents go through, the staff had to go through in order for them to really learn what it was like to be dependent on others for every little thing like, I'm thirsty, I'm lonely, I'm tired, I'm in pain. All of the things that our residents go through, I wanted the staff to go through in order for them to learn empathy. How did you create this program? So at the time that we were doing, I had learned about culture change and person-directed care. And we were starting to do some of those things, but I felt like we're still really missing something. I felt like there was still a disconnect between the staff and the people that lived there. And so one morning I went to morning report, like all of us always do when we work in long-term care, we have morning report. And that particular morning, the nurses reported off that there was a resident that was passing away. Nothing new in long-term care, right? So after what most of us do, when we learn that a resident is passing away, I went down to that person's room to say goodbye. During that time, there happened to be no one else in the room. So I sat down with that person. I held her hand. I prayed with her. I don't know if she knew I was there or not. As I was sitting there with her, I could just hear everything going on outside the door. You know, people, staff asking each other, what's for lunch today? Is anybody going to order out? Has so-and-so had a bowel movement? I mean, just life that was going on outside of that doorway and how life was ending inside of that room. And it was, mm. to me, suddenly, no matter, I'd already been working there for years, but for some reason at that moment, it felt so much more impactful that I thought, do the staff realize really the significance as what is happening? Because it's something that we experience every day as professionals in long-term care. And did they really know what was happening on this side of the door? And it was really during that moment that I thought, I wonder if I could get the staff to know really what it was like to be her and wonder, did we honor her choices? Did we honor her dignity? At the time, she was the first resident that we allowed, and I hate that word, that we allowed to bring her dog in. So her dog lived with her there. And we thought we were really doing some major culture change practices by allowing someone to bring their pet in. But I thought, was that even enough? And so I really wanted the staff to know what it was like to be her. Were we hitting it? Were we doing culture change enough? I guess what I want to ask is what you're speaking about, I heard from participants and part of your audience afterwards. I'm like, this is so innovative. But I wonder if you have people come up afterwards or maybe even openly ask you, this sounds brilliant, but I don't know if I can replicate it. Either I don't have the time, I don't have the energy, I don't have the money, or I won't have the support from my staff. 
Do you get those questions? I do. I get those questions a lot. People ask a lot, well, you must have had a lot of extra staff or you must have a lot of extra money to be able to do those things. And I said, no, I happen to have some empty beds. And so I could have the staff move in and to be able to fill some of those empty beds. And the only thing that cost extra is that the staff, that while they were living there, I did pay them for the eight hours that they would have normally been on the schedule. But the rest of the time was strictly volunteer. And I had 15 staff members that moved in to live like residents. More people did it for like a 24 hours, but I had 15 people actually move in. Some of them stayed for three days, some 11 days, some eight days in order for them to really understand what it was like to be dependent on there. So that's a lot of volunteer hours on the staff in order to do that. Some of them were single parents. Some of them were students that were willing to do those things. Tell me what you learned from the process. I was reading through some of the excerpts from your book and reading through some of the reviews of your book on Amazon. And some people talk about kind of what you build out of the process for staff journals, that you came up with some policies and procedures that now that you're passionate about around personal body alarms. Tell me what you learned. Oh, gosh, I learned so much more about my staff. I learned so much more about what they were willing to do in order to be better. There were so many things that really brought me to tears because I felt so honored, again, that I had staff that was willing to sacrifice their time and really willing to sacrifice their own dignity in order to learn to be better CNAs, better housekeepers, better office managers, better activity directors. My director of nursing moved in. My assistant director of nursing moved in. So because I did things to them that were embarrassing, that they felt degraded. Every single one of my staff members that participated said that they lost weight, they felt depressed, they mm. quit showering, all of those things. And so I myself, really as an administrator, I knew that I could push the envelope. I was no longer scared for us to continue to raise the bar to be better because I knew as a culture, as our community, that we were willing to really go above and beyond to be better. How did the book come about? And the title I have is What Living as a Resident Can Teach Long-Term Care Staff, The Power of Empathy to Transform. How did that come about? And then I'm going to ask you some questions about your creative process. What was difficult about it for you from a writing point of view? So I can really think Gary Glazner, who developed the Alzheimer's Poetry Project, he heard about the experience that we were doing with the staff and emailed me and said, I've heard about this experience through the looking glass. And he was writing a book called Dementia Arts. And Gary at the time was living in Brooklyn and emailed and said, I was wondering, could I move into your nursing home as part of my own research? I think it's pretty cool what you're doing. Could I move in as part of my own research? So we were at a very small community in Southern Illinois. So he moved in, stayed with us for about, I think, five days. He was writing a book for Health Professions Press. And he told them what he was doing in this experience that he was taking part in. And so then connected them with me. They emailed me and said, we heard about this experience that you're doing with your staff and was wondering, would you be interested in writing a book about it? So it was a very cool experience for me to do that. What was the hardest part of writing the book for you? Finding the time to do it. What was the chapter or aspect of writing that you most enjoyed? Okay, confession time. Yes, I host the LTC Heroes podcast, and hopefully you know that by now, but I can't take all the credit. 
Jason Long, the CEO of Experience Care, told me two years ago that when we started this show, that this new audio platform had to create value for everyone, whether you're a client of Experience Care EHR or not. Then he encouraged me to become a CNA to really help LTC heroes resonate with caregivers and leaders. And between you and me, he really knew what he was talking about. LTC Heroes has been invited to almost 10 conventions in 2022 to finally shine a light on what leaders like you have been doing for decades. It's that sort of knowledge of the industry that really makes me appreciate Experience Care, which has developed a customizable and intuitive EHR that makes clinical financial and billing processes more efficient and accurate. It transforms workflows into something that makes sense so you can focus on what really matters, caring for your residents. The software is used by ALFs, SNFs, CCRCs, big and small facilities alike. Countless users have reached out and shared with me that it really is effective in helping them improve outcomes. I can honestly say that I know my grandparents would be proud to learn that I work at a place like at Experience Care, and I just wanted to take the time to thank Experience Care for sponsoring this podcast. Check out their latest products at www.experience.care. I really enjoyed going back through, I invited all the staff that participated to journal the whole time they were there. And so I had all of those journals and I really enjoyed going back through and reading those journals and learning more about their own experiences and then sharing those journals and those stories with the readers. And there was so much about some of those things that reminded me and kind of brought me to tears really again of what they learned about themselves and how they grew in their own roles. Were there any parts of the journal that impacted you differently when you reread it? Maybe the first time you read it, you were at a different stage in your life, or you didn't hear it in the way that you did the second time? I think there was one particular journal that really impacted me. And that, as I mentioned, that I really felt like that we were doing a lot of culture change practices and whenever we started doing this experience. And I remember reading one journal of a CNA that he had the diagnosis that he'd had a stroke and his left side had been affected. And every time he needed to go to the bathroom, he had to ask the staff for help. He had to be transferred with a Hoyer lift, all of those things. And he worked the evening shift as a CNA on many occasions. When I was reading his journal, he had said in there that he had put on his call light because he needed to use the restroom. And he could overhear the staff out in the hallway arguing amongst each other about whose turn it was to take him to the bathroom. And nobody wanted to do it because someone else, like this person did it the last time and that was this person's turn. And he said it really bothered him because he wanted to get so much out of that experience. And so he really wanted his staff, his CNAs really that were taking care of him, he really wanted them to also be all in. But he said what really bothered him the most and what was most impactful for him is that he had been that CNA out in the hallway complaining and arguing with his coworkers about whose turn it was next to take that person to the bathroom. He said, I had no idea that the residents could hear us out in the hallway. It didn't even dawn on me that they could hear us. And I felt awful knowing that I've been that person. When you were developing the program and experimenting, did those kind of experiences from those journals, did you then share those as a team or did you just keep them at the individual level? I did share some of them as a team, but you know, they were personal journals to them. And so they were, again, lessons learned for us. Those people that participated, they taught a lot to their coworkers as well. It wasn't just the people that lived there that learned and grew. It was the people around them 
and their caregivers. And I say caregivers and what we turn them into care partners. But everyone really grew because I think that their coworkers also were really impressed by what they were willing to do. Like, look, I can't believe that you're doing this. And even though I don't think that I could do this, I'm so impressed that you're doing this, that they were also then willing to grow and learn. And, you know, unfortunately, it's just different when it's someone that you personally know and that you work with that's going through that and sharing that experience with them. Then you're like, oh, okay, well, now I'm willing to change that. And sometimes, unfortunately, when it's a person living in our long-term care community and they're telling us about an experience they don't like, we have that kind of that tunnel vision of, oh, it's someone that's just complaining. And it changes that. When it's your coworker, they're saying, hey, you know what? You know when Mrs. Smith used to always tell us that she didn't like it when we would do X, Y, and Z? Well, guess what? It really is terrible. Like, that's the same thing I experienced. And we really should change that. So, you know, it added more weight to that. There was a lot of things that we changed, a lot of lessons learned from the experience. Have you helped other communities implement the same project that you did? Through speaking at conferences, like I did at Leading Age Nebraska, what other people hearing about the experience, there were other communities that then emulated that. And some of them all in, just like what I did, and some of them doing just pieces of having people go through challenges and things like that. So there have been other communities that have taken pieces of that and done the same thing. And, you know, like at Leading Age Nebraska, whenever I spoke about it, when I do those presentations, It's not my expectation that people go and do the exact same thing, even though I would love that. I think that everybody should. But I hope that people learn that you have to be willing to take a risk and to kind of elevate things in order to really transform your culture, in order to really create change, that you have to be willing to take a risk. People told me whenever I first came up with the idea, your staff is never going to do that. That's the craziest idea I've ever heard. And it was a crazy idea. And some staff said, no, there's no way I'll do that. But the fact that I had 15 that said, heck yeah, when can I move in? That's really whenever you get pretty excited that change is really going to happen. Leslie, you wear a lot of different hats. So moving kind of from author over to consultant. And before we get there, do you have any other books on the horizon? Are you working on anything right now? I don't have any other books. I also am an adjunct faculty member for Maryville University of St. Louis. And I love doing that as well. It was sort of my goal to teach young people and get them excited about long-term care because we need more people. We need people to get really excited to work in long-term care. And so that was sort of my goal as well. So I teach intro gerontology, senior living services, and population health management. That's a perfect way to talk about your initiation story. How did you get into long-term care? Were you an academic first? Were you a nurse? Were you in acute care first? I was a kid growing up in long-term care. (laughs) So my parents were in long-term care. That was always their profession. And so I grew up in long-term care. As soon as I turned 16, I was able to drive to the nursing home. I was working at the nursing home on the weekends. And then whenever I went away to college, my dad kept pestering me saying, so as soon as you graduate, you're going to come work for me, right? And I said, no, I'm not going to work for you. And he just kept begging and pestering, and he was never one to take no for an answer. And so the day after I finished my last class, my senior year, I went to work at one of our, at that time, was an independent living community and never looked back. And so tell me about the academic aspect. Did you do that later? Is that a second career? Is that a parallel career? When did you add that on? 
So I did that much later. I worked as a nursing home administrator from 1994 to 2017. So after I left that role as nursing home administrator, and after my kids were getting a little bit older, and I decided that I wanted to go back and get my master's degree in order to have that ability to teach. And so I did that after I left the role of being a nursing home administrator. And tell me what Dignity Quotient is. What do you do there? I came up with a name because of the experience that I did with Through the Looking Glass, where I really wanted to learn how to treat our residents with dignity. Were we treating our residents with dignity? And we got so good at getting to know who our residents were that I felt like that we were still missing that piece of really getting to know who our staff are. We spend so much time gathering life stories on our residents. We spend very little time gathering those life stories of our staff. And we expect our staff to work 60 hours a week for us, not 40 anymore, but we expect them to give 150%. And I wanted to make sure that we were elevating that, that we were also treating our staff with dignity. But then quotient comes in because it's like, I can tell you, I really felt that you should have handled that situation with Mary, the night shift CNA with more dignity. And you might say, well, I thought I did. You know, what does dignity really look like? It's so different to so many people. It's based on a perspective. So how do we really measure that dignity? I teach people on what dignity really looks like and how we can give feedback with dignity and how we can take feedback with dignity, so all of those types of things. Do you have any simple tools that you go to teach, whether they be clients of yours or when you're doing convention speaks, how to analyze dignity or their definition of dignity to make sure that they understand that maybe it's a gray word that's not a black and white definition? And just so you know where I'm going with it, when you started to talk about getting to know your staff, I do a workshop at long-term care conventions around how impactful the book Five Languages of Love has been for me as a human. I use it for my team and my company and where I work. And then I've started to teach long-term care frontline caregivers that you can use that tool to determine or how to flip a negative relationship that you might be having with an antagonistic resident or with a peer that you just don't understand. If you learn their love language, you can really change it. Do you have any simple tools or frameworks that either you borrow, steal, or have invented that could help me understand dignity? Because I don't think I've ever used the word dignity twice in an interview in my life. You know, I came up with some values that I felt like that, you know, we all have different values. Some of us are more empathetic with other to others. Some of us are more compassionate. Some of us how to know how to forgive easily. Some of us have more energy than others. Some of us are, you know, we have all of these different values and we don't want the same people working on the same neighborhood, the same team that all have the same values. You know what? I understand that empathy maybe becomes a little bit more difficult for you. Or I understand that saying I'm sorry or learning to think a new way doesn't come easily for you. And that's okay. And so building those teams based on different values, I think it's important for us to get to know each other as coworkers so that we can work better together. We do so much complaining about each other, don't we? Whenever, when we're working with somebody, sometimes you would hear people say, oh, I just don't want to work with her again. But if we get to know that person and understand what their values are, and we can be more empathetic to that and know what really makes that person tick and know what they're maybe not as good at. But you know what? Guess what? I'm really good at that. So I'll take that on for you if you take this on for me. So that's what I think is really important because then we can start treating each other with more dignity because we understand them better. 
I find it interesting that you connect dignity beyond kind of senior living. I don't like if you were to told me, hey, Peter, we're going to talk about dignity. I definitely would have understood that we're talking about residents, but you just connected it with staff and you connected it with CNAs. I think that's really beautiful. Have you always had that connection or is that something you figured out in life? I think I figured that out in life. I mean, none of us are born to be leaders and to really understand each other, right? And so I think it's just through my experience of working in long-term care and hearing people's stories too and what people go through that I think has helped me develop to be more empathetic and to treat people with more dignity. Leslie, as we wrap up, I've got a weird question. You might need more time to think on it, so feel free to say I'll pass. As you go around the country speaking, when you're presenting your beautiful program, innovative program, have you ever had anyone else come up to you and say, hey, I'm doing this and that, and you're like, oh, this is really, really cool, and that you've learned from someone else? I mean, people do so many cool things. I am drawing a blank, though, on what some of those are right now. Yes, you have caught me kind of off guard. but No, no worries. I didn't warn you. <laughs> there are so many people doing great, innovative things. I mean, I read the story just recently, and I was with Alex Spinko last week at the Illinois Pioneer Coalition Summit in Chicago. And I know that Alex Spinko works for the Greenhouse Project, and they are doing some innovative things in Massachusetts where they have staff actually living on the same campus as their long-term care community in order for them to, knowing that Cape Cod is a very expensive place to live, and so they're giving those people housing. And I think that's amazing. We should all be doing that, right? Especially in those places where it's more expensive to live. Yeah, I don't remember who the person is, but they told me in Florida they were putting together transportation and doing buses and doing caravans because people couldn't live, you know, within 10 miles of the facility. So then they were saying that the gas was too expensive, they couldn't find parkings, but living with them is really, really unique. Leslie, yeah. thank you for so much for joining me on LTC Heroes. I'm glad that we were able to connect because I heard such great feedback from your presentation, but now I feel like I got to meet you in person and hear about it from you in real life. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit Experience.Care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.